Welcome to the latest message in our Words for Life podcast, which highlights the teaching ministry of Liberty Heights Church. Today's sermon is the first message in our Advent Christmas series called God With Us, where for three weeks we'll look at different texts that focus on the greatest act of self-emptying that has ever taken place, the incarnation of Christ. Join Pastor Brad Cunningham in this first message as we turn our attention to Philippians chapter 2 for a message titled, How to Get in the Christmas Spirit. There is no doubt, despite our very best of intentions, uh, that the commercialization of Christmas impacts all of us, even though we try to fight against that. It's so powerful, the routines and traditions of this time of the year, that it actually can change the trajectory of entire countries. For proof of that, you only need to look at Japan and what happens with KFC. Now, the country may not celebrate Christmas, but oddly enough, uh, the Japanese have a tradition of having KFC on Christmas Day. Well, how, how in the world did that happen? So here's what happened. There were some Americans living over there, some tourists, and during the Christmas season, they began to have a longing for familiar traditions and specifically turkey on Thanksgiving. And so the, they did some research. The closest thing they could find was KFC. And so KFC did what smart companies do. They began to market that and leverage that. And there was an explosion of people, all sales, KFC sales all over Japan on December the 25th. Think about this. Families even book their seasonal feasts at KFC in Japan months in advance. That's how powerful traditions are at this time of the year. And my guess is that for some of you, you've got some unique family traditions. Maybe it's some games you play or certain foods you eat or just uh, family traditions that are unique to your family that you cherish uh, this time of the year. For, for example, in our family, I don't even know when this started the last few years, uh, my wife has decided that every single year we're going to get a new set of matching Christmas pajamas. And I said, there's nothing wrong with my current pajamas. I'll just wear those. And she said, nobody wants to see you in your boxers at Christmas dinner, all right? And so every year I just I draw the line at the footies, you know, the one piece with a zipper. I'm not, I'm not doing it this year, all right? And so all these routines are, are kind of meant to get us uh, in the Christmas spirit. Matter of fact, on the way over from uh, Mason campus, I was listening to Christian radio, and the lady actually said, we need to get into the Christmas spirit. She actually said that uh, this year. And so it begs the question, what exactly is the Christmas spirit? For some of you, it's connected to the songs that start December the 1st, some of you the day after Thanksgiving, some of you the day after Halloween, not going to heaven, write that down, all right? For some of you, it may be uh, getting those cards from people that you haven't seen all year long. Some of them even write family letters. Here's what's going on in our family. So some of you, that may stir the Christmas spirit uh, in you. Some of you, it's memories created around the dining room table or in the family room or maybe in the car uh, taking in lights. Maybe for you, maybe it's all the deep plot of the Hallmark movies this time of the year, right? Maybe that does it for you, puts in the Christmas spirit. But here's what I would argue. That for the Christian, the Christmas spirit has to be attached to a much deeper meaning, even though there's nothing wrong with any of those other things to enjoy. J.I. Packer defines the Christmas spirit in his book, Knowing God, this way. He said, we talk glibly of the Christmas spirit, rarely meaning more than this, the sentimental jollity of family this time of the year. It ought to mean the reproducing of human lives, the attitude of him who for our sakes became poor, 
The spirit of those who, like their master, live their whole lives on the principle of making themselves poor to enrich other people by giving time, trouble, care, and concern to do good to others in whatever way there seems need. Let me give you the Cunningham paraphrase. The Christmas spirit for a Christian has to be connected to the self-emptying Christ of Christmas. And to do that is to live countercultural to all the marketing this time of the year where all the marketing is to get you to believe, to convince you that the Christmas spirit can be obtained by adding something into your life as opposed to sacrificing anything is what will increase your joy. Well, turn with me in your Bibles or devices to Philippians chapter 2. Uh, for a brand new series we're kicking off entitled, God With Us. And we've titled this first message, How to Get Into the Christmas Spirit. For the next three weeks, we're going to look at three key passages uh, on the doctrine of the incarnation, which is the miracle and the message of Christmas. Incarnation is a, a big theological word that simply means God took human form in the body of Christ. In other words, God was incarnated in human flesh. Uh, In other words, the word Emmanuel, it literally means uh, God with us. And so we're going to get three key passages over the next three weeks on the doctrine of incarnation and what does it mean, what does it look like, what does it matter uh, for us as we look at these texts. And and I would argue that uh, of the three, you could make an argument for all of them, but Philippians chapter 2 may be the pinnacle of understanding the doctrine implication of the incarnation. So Philippians chapter 2, I'm going to look at verses 1 through 11 this morning. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so if the incarnation is the catalyst uh, to celebrate Christmas, then then how do we align our lives and our thoughts so that uh, we can experience the Christmas spirit in a way that actually points people to the Christ of Christmas. So let's look at two things this morning right from the text. Uh, The first step in experiencing the true spirit of Christmas is simply this. You have to get your mind right. And the hard part is all the marketing, all the schedule, all the business is drawing our attention away from Christ into all the activities and all the commercialing and all the marketing. And so we have to have a resolve. And the challenge is that, that, again, everything is pulling us away 
towards Christ uh, during this time of the year. Uh, everything, the marketing is geared towards accumulation, accumulating the perfect gift or the perfect experience or the perfect meal or the perfect setting or the perfect house, all those things. And it has very little to do with what Christmas is about, which is actually uh, about sacrifice. And so it's incredibly hard because everything in culture is pointing you towards accumulation when the incarnation is about sacrifice. But here's the good news and the tension of that challenge. You are not powerless to live this way. One of the things we've tried to teach you over and over uh, here at Liberty Heights is simply this, that when you think of a relationship with Christ, we don't want it to be limited to Christ forgave my sins in the past and Christ secured a home for me in heaven in the future. Those are incredible truths to celebrate. But in the meantime, in the present, I've been given a brand new identity in Jesus Christ and attached to that identity is new promises and new power and new potential are all mine because I have been united to Jesus Christ. And the thing that we get as a part of that new identity is that we get to operate with the mind of Christ. Look at verse 5. What does he say? He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, let me repeat something we've taught often. When you see the word mind in Scripture, it has nothing to do with a physical matter between your ears. It has nothing to do with intellectual processes. The mind in Scripture is interchangeable with the inner man or heart or affections or soul or spirit. All those are the inner man. So what he's saying is, hey, let your mindset, your attitudes, or your actions uh, represent what the attitude and actions and affections of would be with Jesus Christ. He said, have this mind mindset or this attitude in you. New American Standard translates verse 5 this way, have this attitude in yourselves which was also uh, in Christ Jesus. Early on when I first became a Christian, uh, one of the first Bible studies that I ever did was a book called Experiencing God. Anybody been through Experiencing God in the room? Yeah, lots of you had. One of the other Bible studies early on uh, that I was exposed to was uh, written by a guy named T.W. Hunt, and the study was called The Mind of Christ. And listen to what he wrote. He said, Philippians 2.5 tells us that we are to have the mind of Christ. This verse is part of a poem that was originally a hymn, and this verse says that we're to think like Jesus thinks. In the original Greek, it's the word phreneo, and it means to think or be minded uh, in a certain way. Our mind is to have the same characteristics that Christ's mind has. Here's what's interesting as well. In the original language, that word phreneo, it's an imperative in the original language. What that means is this, is it's a command. He says, hey, have the mindset or the attitude or the same desire that Christ had. And this is not a suggestion. This is not something to pray about. This is a command that I would have this same mindset as Jesus Christ. Now, in just a few verses or minutes, we're going to unpack what does that looks like because I understand that that sounds incredibly mystical. What does it mean to have the mind of Christ? But before we do that, I want you to know something that's incredibly encouraging and filled with hope. Notice what he says regarding the mind of Christ in verse 5. What does he say about it? He says, this is yours. That when you belong to Jesus Christ as a part of that brand new identity, you now have the ability to not be left to your own thoughts, not be, have your thoughts and affections drawn away by the marketing of Christmas or any other season, that you can have the mindset or the attitude of Christ, this is yours, you possess it. You don't get this in installments. That this isn't given to us on layaway. You know, everybody know what layaway is? Listen, when I was growing up, if you said, hey, 
what's one word that you would associate with Christmas? Growing up, you know what I would have said? Layaway. Right? Like pull a money down, a little bit of payments. That's how every single Christmas present we were bought. I asked my mom one time, I said, hey, what happens if you miss those payments? She said, you don't want to know. Don't ever ask me that. I didn't. He says, you have this. You possess the mind of Christ. So what does that mean practically? One of the strongest and clearest teachings on the mind of Christ in all the New Testament is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And listen to what verse 16 says in 1 Corinthians 2. It says, for who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. And then leading all the way up to verse 16 in 1 Corinthians 2, he begins to unpack what the characteristics are of the mind of Christ and all those preceding verses. Let me read them to you. He said, the mind of Christ stands in sharp contrast to the wisdom of man, verses five and six. The mind of Christ involves wisdom from God, once hidden, but now revealed, verse seven. The mind of Christ is given to believers through the spirit of God, verses 10 through 12. The mind of Christ cannot be understood Without the spirit, verse 14, hang on to that. We're going to come back to that later, all right? And then he says, the mind of Christ gives believers discernment in spiritual matters, verse 15. Now, let me tell you why that's so encouraging. Because I possess this as a part of my brand new identity in Christ. I possess the mind of Christ, so I'm not powerless at Christmas to fall for all the marketing and to draw me away and think this season's really about accumulation or some experience that I can live with the mind of Christ or the mindset of Christ and realize that the true message of Christmas is about sacrifice, not about accumulation. That's what it means to really get into the Christmas uh, spirit, that I, I can live this way, not just at Christmas, but all throughout the year with the same mindset that Jesus Christ himself has. If that's incredibly encouraging to you, would you just say amen this morning? We love practical Bible teaching. And so this is really simple. The mind of Christ or the attitude of Christ, how do I really know what, what was the mind of Christ? It's real simple. What were the actions of Christ? You see, whatever the affections of the inner man are, uh, it's going to show up in the outer man act actions. Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart. Why? Because it determines the course of your life. Whatever your mindset is, truly is, you may lie to yourself, but your true mindset or affections are revealed in your actions. And so, uh, what does it look like, the actions of Christ that reveal the mindset of Christ? And so what we learn is the incarnation, the first Christmas, tells us exactly what a Christ-centered mindset looks like at Christmas. This is the mindset of Christ when he took on flesh to be among us. I want you to see three things right from the text. This is the mind of Christ played out in the life of Christ in the incarnation. First off, we see he veiled his glory. Now, if you're listening, say amen. I'm going to teach you something incredibly theologically important this morning. As a matter of fact, I would say if you don't understand this, you're on the verge of, of heresy. That's how important this is uh, theologically. In verse 6, when it says that Jesus was in the form of God, or some of your translations may say the nature of God, it's the Greek word uh, morphe. And that word morphe, it literally means the inner essence. And so what he's saying is Jesus, at the incarnation, literally still possessed the inner essence of God the Father. At the incarnation, Jesus was fully man and fully God. If you're geeked out by 
theological terms, that doctrine is known as the hypostatic union of Christ, that he's fully God while at the same time fully man at the incarnation. The reason that's important to understand in verse 6 is it guards us from a false teaching that arises in verse 7. Look at verse 7. It says, but he emptied himself by taking the form, there's that word again, form, morphe, of a servant. And so the word uh, form there means inner essence. He had the inner essence of a human servant. What's that mean? He was fully man at the incarnation. And so when it says he emptied himself, if why we're showing off our theology, uh, that's what's known as the doctrine of kenosis, which literally is the self-emptying of Christ. Now, here's where you got to dial in, all right? So listen closely. When it talks about the self-emptying of Christ, it was not the emptying of his divine nature. Jesus was still the same inner essence of God, verse 6, and yet he's still fully man, inner essence, verse 7. So when he talks about the kenosis or the self-emptying of Christ at the incarnation, Jesus did not cease to be fully God on that first Christmas, He did not empty himself of his nature, so what exactly did he empty himself of? He emptied himself of all of his divine rights and privileges. And you know why he did that? For you. On our behalf, laid aside the glory of heaven. Listen to the explanation given by one commentary. It says, notice in Philippians 2, 7, where it talks about the self-emptying, it does not specify what the Son of God emptied himself of, and so therefore, we can't go beyond the text. He said, but we know that Jesus did not empty himself of his divine attributes, because they're not mentioned in that verse, and it's obvious from the Gospels that Jesus still possessed the power and the wisdom of God. Colossians 2, 9 says, in Christ." All the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. It is better to think of Christ emptying of himself as a laying aside of the privileges that were his in heaven. Listen to what he says. He veiled his glory and he chose to occupy the position of a servant. So what does it look like? What did Christ do? He veiled his glory. He chose to limit, lay aside all of his divine rights and privileges of heaven and to veil his glory. To deflect it to the Father. And so he veiled his glory. What else do we know was the mind of Christ, revealing the actions of Christ? The uh, second thing we see in the text is he humbled himself. Look at verse 8. It says, being found in human form, he humbled himself. I want you to think about this. When you read the Old Testament, the imagery that it gives in the creation of the universe and the galaxies, it talks about God as, uh, as if he had the stars in his hands. And literally when he created the galaxies, it was just, there they are. That's it. That same God, omnipotent, sovereign creator, uh, took on street clothes and walked among sinners. There's not a greater definition of humility than that. That the highest of highs, the glory of heaven, was laid aside to take on flesh and walk among men. That's the ultimate act of humility. It's the ultimate, it's the supreme act, theologians call it, of condescension. When we understand the heights from which he descended from and realize the supreme act of humility, he humbled himself. Thirdly, in the text we see he chose obedience over comfort. Verse 8 says this, even obedience to death on the cross. Not just any cross. Criminal's cross. Talk about condescension. Talk about humility. Talk about obedience Listen to this excerpt. How many of you at some point in time have 
read or use our daily bread and part of your devotional life? Anybody been familiar with that? Yeah, it's been out for years. Wonderful little devotional tool. Listen to the excerpt from our daily bread from Philippians 2. It says, we read that the Son of God laid aside his divine glory and became a servant by being made in human likeness and dying on the cross for our sins. Listen to this. Following his example means letting the mind of Christ be in us and humbly serving others. That's the true spirit of Christmas. And so when you talk about getting the Christmas spirit, that's what it looks like. Self-emptying, not accumulation, not getting the perfect experience, the perfect meal, the perfect gift. It's not about accumulation. It's about self-sacrifice. It's not about the glory for myself and all these things. It's about deflecting my glory. It has nothing to do with lights or parties or Mariah Carey. Even though there's nothing sinful about those first two. Amen? I've told you this on more than one occasion. You need to write this down if you haven't yet. Did you know this? Trust me, I'm a pastor. That every day in hell for lunch, they serve egg salad. Write that down. I know some of you like that, and so I, like, I don't even want, like, look at it. You ever looked at it? Smell it. Who eats that? But what you've I've yet to reveal in all my wisdom over the years is while they're serving that every day for lunch in hell, they're playing on a continuous loop, all I want for Christmas from Mariah Carey. Amen? It's in the Bible. Look it up. And so getting in the Christmas spirit, there's nothing wrong with those things or most of them. But it has everything to do with having a mindset that Christ modeled and illustrated in taking on human flesh, a mindset of deflecting glory or veiling your glory, a mindset of humility, a mindset of sacrificial obedience on behalf of others. That's what the incarnation teaches us theologically. That's what it calls us to practically. That's the message of Christmas. That's the overflow of the reality of Emmanuel, God with us. And while the incarnation was and what it illustrates about the mindset of Christ is clear in verses 5 through 8. Here's what's not clear. How do we know if we have that mindset? Because the Bible says in Jeremiah chapter 17 that we're all deceived by the wickedness of our hearts, affections, desire. We're all deceived, uh, to use the language of Philippians 2, we're all deceived by the actual true mindset that we're operating out of is what Jeremiah chapter 7. How do we know in fact if we're celebrating uh, in a Christ-centered way or uh, more it resembles uh, what modeled by Hallmark? And here's the dilemma While you and I are commanded, verse 5, to have the mindset of Christ, the challenge is you can't mirror his actions that that reveal his mindset in verses 6, 7, and 8. That's where the dilemma is. You're not God in the flesh, despite what you tell your spouse. You've not called to die a sacrificial death. On a criminal's cross, in other words, the attitude should be the same, but the actions cannot be modeled. Those were specific to Jesus. So what does it look like if you and I are truly living with the mindset, sacrificial mindset of Christ that was illustrated on the incarnation of Christ in that first Christmas? Uh, you don't have to wonder because it's spelled out for you in verses 1 through 4. And so if you're going to get the Christmas spirit, number one, Have the right mindset, and number two, uh, to reveal the mindset you have, uh, this, be honest about your life. You and I are incredibly proficient 
self-swindlers. Have you noticed this about yourself? I've noticed that I'm incredibly skilled at judging others based on their actions, but judging myself based on my intentions. I'm an expert. So are you. And so what does a life look like that's truly in the spirit of Christmas in a Christ-centered, self-sacrificing, glory-deflecting, obedient way? You know what it looks like? Verses 1 through 4. Go back in verses 1 through 4. What does he say? He says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection, simply what's affection a synonym for? Uh, mind or mindset. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And in verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So what, what does my life look like if I'm truly living with the mindset of Christ that was displayed at the incarnation? I want to show you three things right here from the text. Uh, number one, we'll live in unity with others instead of conflict. Let me ask you a hard question. Is your life consistently marked by relational conflict and you're the only common denominator? You ever notice that people can't connect the dots? Then all the brokenness of their life, the dysfunctional life, that they're the only common denominator? You ever hear a person who can't keep a job? I have the worst luck. I just keep getting the worst boss every single time. Maybe you're a terrible employee. I just have the worst luck financially. Maybe you make bad decisions. I just have the biggest struggle in relationships. Maybe you're hard to get along with. And so what's he say here? In verse 2, he says, complete my joy, being of the same mind, the same love, being in full accord, and have uh, of one mind. So, so what's he saying? That I'm living with this uh, kind of others first, humility, self-sacrificing, glory deflecting kind of attitude which reveals the mind of Christ. And as a result of that, I, I can live in unity with other people. I don't always have to have my own way. You know what it looks like when you're not living with self-deflecting glory that was modeled by Christ? You know what that looks like? That in these relational strife, you're more interested in being right than you are in being reconciled. Second thing, right from the text, if I truly have the mindset of Christ, I'll live selflessly instead of being self-centered, verse 3. I love how one translation reads verse 3. Look what it says. We will esteem others better than ourselves. Is it just me or is that a needed word in a selfie-saturated society? You know what social media is mostly geared for? Self-promotion, self-marketing. Self-platform building. And he says, hey, when you have the mindset of Christ, then you're not interested. What you're actually interested in is you actually esteem others better than yourself. And the third thing he says, again, right in the text, we will concern ourselves with the concern of others. Look at verse 4. What's he saying? Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Folks, that's what Christ did for us at the incarnation. 
That he looks down at the plight of sinful humanity and he looks at all of our sin and the brokenness that it's caused and the separation from God that it's caused. And he looked down and he didn't say, hey, I can resonate with that, that I'm in the same boat. No, he said, he didn't look and say, hey, that's none of my concern because I have never sinned. What he did is he concerned himself with the things that concern us, which was our sin, to reconcile us back to God. Sometimes we have this phrase in, uh, in our culture, we say this, hey, uh, finish this sentence, right? You made your bed, now lie in it. Can I, can I just tell you, that is the complete opposite of the gospel? The gospel says you and I made our bed, we chose to rebel against God, we chose to give in to the sinful desires of our flesh, and so we made our bed in regards to the situation of the sin, and Christ didn't say, hey, you made your bed, line or fix it. He said, hey, you made your bed, and I'm going to rescue you from it. I'm going to concern myself with your concerns, because you cannot fix your concerns. That's why I came the first Christmas and took on flesh, to concern myself with the concern of others, because you couldn't fix your concerns. That's what it looks like to live with the mind of Christ, to concern myself with the concern of others. Remember I told you earlier, hang on to that truth, that only those with the Spirit of God can possess the mind of Christ Here's something I want you to understand. Not only do you not have the mind of Christ, you you can't live. Apart from Jesus, you cannot live with this mindset. You don't have the ability. And if you don't know Jesus, the good news is this. You are going to meet him one day. The bad news is this. It will not be in the way that you hoped it would be. Verse 10, it says that everyone, even those who openly rejected him, on that final day, everyone will confess him as Lord. And then look at verse 11. And the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What does that mean when it says every knee will bow? Literally, it means exactly what it says, that the two knees that walked you in here, those two knees will bow and confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord of glory, that the Christ of Christmas is the exalted King of the universe. And every tongue will confess that, that the one who was humbled by taking on flesh will be exalted. The one who was brought low in the manger will be raised in glory. And here's what I want you to understand, and I want everyone to look up here and listen. To bow before him now means salvation. To bow before him at judgment means Condemnation. Message of Christmas is Emmanuel, God with us. And the meaning of the incarnation is this. He descended that we might ascend. He was born that we might be born again. He became a servant that we might become sons. He was forsaken so that we would not be forsaken. He died so that we might live. He came down that we might one day be caught up with him. 
And if you're hearing this, you're thinking, I'm not worthy to experience the love of Jesus Christ and the message of Christmas, what it's all about, then I want you to understand, I would argue, you don't fully understand what took place that first Christmas if you feel that way. The king of the universe, the Lord of glory, became a pauper for our sake. Think about this. He had to borrow a place to be born, a boat to preach from, a place to sleep, a donkey to ride in, an upper room to use for the Last Supper, and a tomb in which he was buried. Jesus literally, at the incarnation that first Christmas, he literally descended from the highest of highs and went to the lowest of lows. And what that means is this, that no matter how low you feel this morning, Jesus has been there. No matter how low you feel this morning, Jesus has been lower and therefore can lift you up out of the pit of sin. Praise God. That's what that means. And if you just say, I don't feel worthy to experience all that, then here's what I would argue in a kind but direct way. You don't fully understand what Christmas is about. You've yet to fully embrace the true spirit of Christmas that he ascended high and was laid low in the manger for our sake. Former missionary told the story of two rugged, powerful mountain goats. They met on a narrow pathway joining two mountain ridges. On one side was a chasm a thousand feet deep. On the other side was a cliff as far as the eye could see. And so narrow was the trail, there was no room to turn around, and the goats could not back up without falling. What would they do? Instead of fighting for the right to pass, one of the goats knelt down and made himself as flat as possible. And then the other goat walked over him, and then they both proceeded on to safely, safety. You say, what has that got to do with Christmas? This is what Jesus Christ did for us on that first Christmas when he left heaven's glory and came down to earth to die for our sins. He saw us trapped between our sin and God's righteousness, and there was no escape. And so on that first Christmas, he humbled himself by giving up his right to use his divine power. He came in the likeness of man and took on the form of a servant. Then he died for our sins. And in a sense, in a real literal sense, he laid down his life so that you and I could walk over him to safety. If you really want to get in the Christmas spirit, then start this season off by receiving the Christ of Christmas. Emmanuel means God with us. But the key question is this, are you with him? Would you bow your heads this morning? With your head bowed this morning, I want to ask you two questions. Question number one is this. Have you received the greatest gift anyone could ever receive, which is Jesus Christ?
And if you feel low and unworthy to receive his forgiveness, and the message of Christmas is this, is that Jesus has been lower. Emmanuel means God with us. But are you with him? Have you recognized that there was a separation between you and God because of your sin? And you realize that Christ laid down his life and you've walked across Jesus for forgiveness. And the answer is no. Then here's the good news. You're not here today by accident. God brought you here to hear this message. God brought you here for this very moment in time for you to make a decision to receive Jesus Christ. Would you pray right now and confess your sins? Would you declare by faith that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, was buried, and rose the third day? And today, would you pray and receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? Would you receive the Christ of Christmas as your Lord and Savior? Would you do that right now? You can be saved right now in your seat. Would you pray and receive Christ today? For those of you who do know Christ, you're walking with the Lord. Let me ask you a question. Are you really in the Christmas spirit? Are you living with a desire to deflect glory away from yourself? Are you living with a desire to live in love and unity with other people? Are you living with a heart that genuinely esteems others better than yourself? Are you, not perfectly, but consistently concerning yourself with the concerns of others? If the answer is no, then here's the good news of grace. You can confess that sin, you can receive forgiveness, and that same grace will empower you to live obediently from Jesus Christ. So would you pray right now, Lord, at this time more than any other time of the year, let me get into the true spirit of Christmas, which is not about accumulation, it's about sacrifice. Lord, help me to live countercultural this Christmas. And God, when people recognize that I am, may I be quick to say, it's all because of what Jesus did for me on that first Christmas. Let me tell you about him. Father, help us to live in such a way that the spirit of Christmas, which is the spirit of Christ, marks our life, not just during this season, but all throughout the year. And God, may it all be for your glory and your glory alone. We pray these things in Christ's name because we can. Amen.